0: Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Jonah chapter four is where we're going to be this morning. As we approach this text, we really are going to run into what is essentially the intersection of all of the major themes of the book of Jonah. Um, We're going to deal uniquely with the fact that the Lord sent a prophet to Nineveh. We're going to deal uniquely with the attributes of God. And ultimately, we're going to deal uniquely with the true and better prophet, the one who is seemingly like Jonah, but infinitely better. And so as we approach this text, I do want to give a brief recap of one particular moment because as we approach verses 1 through 4 of this text, they seem really out of place. They seem really out of place primarily because the same man who is about to utter the words of Jonah 4, 1 through 4 in this prayer to God is the same man who previously prayed in Jonah chapter 2 as he was swallowed up by death and ultimately eventually cast out to go and preach the good news, the judgment of God uniquely to the Ninevites. This is what he says at the end of his prayer. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." Now, it seems as though if we were to continue in the story and we were to read through Jonah chapter three and and look at when Blake preached and the proclamation that Jonah has of this message of judgment, and if we were to look at verses six through nine, we would assume, and even in verse 10, we would assume that Jonah, in light of all the things that God has done in Nineveh, the proclamation of judgment going out, the people being brought to repentance and faith, essentially, this prophet has gotten the reward that every prophet before him has longed for, that when they preach, the people will respond. And it only seems reasonable that as we see all of, these, all of these things unfold, and even as we see Jonah say, salvation belongs to the Lord, that we would get to Jonah chapter four after we see God relent of disaster for Jonah to sing, to Jonah to worship, for Jonah to pray and thank the Lord for his loving kindness, for his steadfast love, for his grace, for his mercy. That's what we would all assume as we read through this would occur. And rightly so. I think that for anyone who cherishes and loves these attributes of God, even as verse uh, 2 says, it says, uh, For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You would naturally assume that this was him exhaling praise for the God who saves. But alas, that is not what we find. And it is so jarring. We read this story and we know it so well that we don't really feel that moment of like, what am I reading? How is it that Jonah amidst all of these things still is spurning and arguably blaspheming the God he says he is the prophet for? And that's what we will discuss this morning. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Jonah chapter four, starting in verse one, making our way through verse four. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Jonah chapter four, starting in verse one, says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Father, we come reading these words that, At one point, as you revealed them to Moses, were sweeter than honey. But Lord, even now we read as this prophet blasphemes you with your own attributes. So, Father, I ask you, would you help us this morning as we approach this text? Would you help us to take a great warning from Jonah? Lord, to love you as you are, to rejoice in the exhibition of your attributes, no matter how they exhibit themselves. But Lord, above all, would you help us to see the true and better prophet who, Lord, embodied the grace, steadfast love, and mercy of God, and the means by which you relent from all disaster. So Father, I ask you to help us once again. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning is, God's loving kindness extends to whoever he wills. God's loving kindness extends to whoever he he wills. We'll see this played out, but to simply break it down quickly, essentially what we're saying is God has the right to do what he wants. Um, That's a relatively simple theme, but for some reason we often question those realities today. The truth of the sovereignty of God means that he gets to do whatever he wants, and whatever he wants to do is good. And so what we want to look at this morning is one who takes offense at God. God revealing his sovereignty and in particularly these attributes of mercy and grace and patience and steadfastness with whomever he wills. And so as we approach this this morning, there are a couple of things that I want us to see about the person of Jonah and really this birthplace of prayer. Because when we look at this text, it really does not make logical sense that this prophet who says over and over again, I fear the God of Israel, I fear the God of the Hebrews to utter these words. So let's do a brief examination because really what you see in this particular text, if we're reading through chapter three and we get to verse 10, when it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Friends, can I just say that throughout the entirety of the prophetic office of Israel, this is the desire of every single prophet. When Ezekiel went forth preaching the word, his desire was to see the people of God repent. When Jeremiah went forth, the exact same thing. His desire was to see the people of God repent. When Isaiah went forth, ultimately, he preached unto death. His desire was to see the nation of Israel, the people of God, repent unto life. That essentially their repentance would see God relent of disaster. This has been the desire of every prophet that has ever preached. Friends, I would go so far as to say, this is the desire of anyone who brings the word of God to you. That the, the desire of anyone's heart, to, even when he preaches judgment, is to see that judgment go out as a sword to wound ultimately that Christ might be the only balm to comfort you. And Jonah amidst this. In reading this, you think Jonah would be just ecstatic. He is one of the very few prophets of Israel that actually got to see repentance. Most of them waited on it. And it would come eventually, but it would come long past their lifetime. But Jonah got to see fruit. Jonah got to see a nation overturned with repentance instead of the sword. And so it, it is interesting that in the midst of this, we would naturally assume that as we approach chapter, uh, chapter four, verse one, that this would be a means of rejoicing to Jonah. But I want you to notice the language of verse one because really the English hurts this verse a little bit. It says, but it, was, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. That first phrase is not so much that it, that it displeased him. He's saying, what Jonah is saying is this was evil to him. It was evil to him. As Jonah approaches, it's not just that he's angry for the sake of anger. It's not just that he's being judgmental of the people of Nineveh. Essentially what we see is Jonah bring a charge against God and call his actions evil. He's saying, Lord, where is your justice? Where is the sword? Where is your righteousness? Where is the one who will crush all evildoers? And he looks at this situation. He looks at God's mercy and he calls it evil. We cannot miss this. When we understand, and we have to understand this rightly, that why is it that Jonah is so incredibly displeased? It is because he is convinced that God is acting in an evil manner. And let's be serious here for a moment. It's not just that God is relenting from disaster. You can imagine Jonah as he's making his way through Nineveh. As he's making his way through Nineveh and even in his pronouncement of judgment, what would he have seen? He would have seen graces from God that are still common to all men. Namely, he would have seen families. He would have seen children playing in the street. All of these things he would have perceived. It's not just that he's angry that God is relenting from a physical disaster. As a matter of fact, I could even assume perhaps that what we see here is is Jonah going a bit further than that because it's not so frustrating to him that he is relenting from disaster. I am convinced that it is God extending himself to a nation that is not the Hebrews. He is angry and furious that God is extending these blessed attributes that Israel has claimed and held dear for so long to a nation that he has already determined is unworthy of it. It's unjust. And can I say, if this is pardon, it is unjust. If it is pardon, if it is God simply glossing over their sin, it is unjust. He knows, Jonah knows the remainder of the verses that he cites from Exodus 34. He knows that he is a God who forgives sin, trespass, and iniquity. But he also knows that he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. And perhaps it is in Jonah's mind because he is not seeing the full picture that he is looking at and perceiving that God is clearing the guilty. Friends, hear me. God has never nor will he ever clear the guilty. He has never pardoned the guilty. He has never swept their sin and trespass under the rug. Nineveh's sins will be accounted for. But as Jonah sees this, he is not perceiving all that God desires him to perceive. He is not seeing his mercy in cooperation, in In sync with his justice, he thinks one violates the other. And my goodness, if there is ever a means by which we pervert the attributes of God, it is when we put his attributes in competition with one another. They are not. They are in perfect harmony always. And so what is it? What is it that is so offensive to Jonah? It is not just his sparing of the people. It is ultimately God extending his covenant love with the people that he perceives do not belong to the covenant. Because this word here that we look at in verse two, when he's bringing this charge, oh Lord, it is not this what I said to you when I was yet in my country. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger. And this word in the middle here, abounding in steadfast love is one word. And it is essentially a word that indicates God's covenant love to a people. This is what is so offensive to him. I'm the covenant people. I am the one of the Hebrews. All of these attributes belong to us. They belong to no one else. He rejoices that God will by no means clear the guilty. Just as the Israelites would have done as they crossed the Red Sea, they rejoiced that the nation behind them was being judged. But even then, friends, were there not some there among those who made the exodus of the Egyptians? Yes, because God has always and will always deal redemptively with any human being who looks to him in faith. I want to point these things out to you because if we misunderstand this, we will never understand even what Don read in our introduction and our call to worship. There was a mystery of the gospel. There was a mystery of the good news because it was perceived that only the Jews would inherit this. But God has over and over again on refrain said, it is for those of faith. And in the New Testament, we get a really beautiful light of this. It says in Galatians chapter three, verses seven through nine, it says this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture for that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to who? To Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Friends, hear me when I say this, when he made that promise to Abraham and you all the nations will be blessed, he included Nineveh. He included the nations that are wicked above any scale of imagination because anyone who comes to God by faith will genuinely be accepted by God on faith. Not because faith is a mighty instrument, but because who it clings to is strong. And when we see this, we see this promise, this good news of the gospel pronounced beforehand to Abraham. Why is it that Jonah doesn't get it? And I'm convinced genuinely it's not that Jonah doesn't get it. It's that Jonah doesn't like it. Jonah hates the idea. You see, even in his proclamation to the sailors in chapter one, how is it that he begins his identity? He says, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And he thinks that means all the covenant promises fall to just me. But we know better. The scripture is quite clear. Who is it that are truly Israel? Who is it that are truly united to God by faith? Those who have the faith of their father, Abraham. And so this promise is made and it goes on. Even Paul addresses it again in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. He says, "'This is why it depends on faith "'in order that the promise may rest on grace "'and, by, and be guaranteed to all his offsprings, "'not only to the adherents of the law, "'but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, "'who is the father of us all. "'As it is written, "'I have made you the father of many nations.'" in the presence of the God in whom whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Brothers and sisters, this perhaps is an overlooked doctrine today, but it is a crucial one. The loving kindness of God does not first and foremost belong to a people. It first and foremost belongs to him. It is his loving kindness. He dispenses it as he wills. In any moment that we see God dispense his loving kindness, even if it be to one one that we perceive is the most wicked sinner that has ever lived, the saints should rejoice. Why should they rejoice? Because a brother or a sister has been added to the kingdom of God. A great sinner will become one who will be a great saint, who will follow Christ, who will preach the gospel, who will sing and worship And brothers and sisters, that is always a reason to rejoice. So what is it that we should see from this? We should see first and foremost that God's attributes, His demonstration of them, His execution of them are always good. Always, without exemption. If He does them, then we can understand them to be good. Even if we look at them and perceive them to be wrong or evil. And friends, when we do, we need to examine ourselves and essentially make the very clear statement that let God be true and every man a liar. Now, it is interesting that these truths are upheld and even demonstrated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Certainly, we have Egyptians leaving and going with the Israelites as they made the, ex- as they made the Exodus. We see Canaanites be brought into the covenant people of God. As we progress through every page of Scripture, there are people that are brought into covenant relationship with God. We see these foreshadowed, but friends in the New Testament we see the substance, we see the source. And that source is genuinely found in John 12:31. John 12:31 says this, "And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself." What's important about this verse is its immediate context, because what has just occurred is the Gentiles have begun to seek Jesus. They want to know this Messiah. And friends, what's lovely about this is, He is their Messiah. He comes and he comes ultimately to see them be brought near. But what's funny about this particular section is Jesus essentially withdraws himself. And as he's withdrawing himself, what he is essentially doing is preparing himself to go and accomplish what is necessary for any person, tribe, tongue, or nation to be united to him by faith. He prepares himself for the cross. As he is lifted up, he draws all to himself. And here's what is lovely. There is no person, no matter how wicked, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what their wealth or income may be, that can look to Jesus and be cast off. Anyone who looks to Christ will be saved. It matters not any secondary identities. If they run to Jesus, then they will genuinely be saved. Because when Jesus is lifted up from the earth, he draws all to himself. Now, this does progress us a bit forward. Because as you look at this verse, we genuinely see from this, Jonah do something that I would genuinely argue is satanic in nature. I want you to look at the language that you see here. It says in verse two, now this man, his audacity and even his presumptions as he prays, because he prays spurning God for the very attributes that give him access to the throne room of grace. This man blows me away. And still I find myself from time to time having, having to realize I am often this man. I am often this man who presumes upon the attributes of God, who presumes upon his graces. And nonetheless, you see Jonah pray and the Lord invites him in. He says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said to you when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The reason I call this satanic is because this is, in essence, what Satan does. He takes the blessed, precious word of God. And what is it that he is most apt to do? Twist. He is excellent at iniquity and he has given that to his children. We are excellent at iniquity. We are excellent at taking what is good and beautiful and twisting it. And this is exactly what Jonah does. Jonah takes this blessed word of the Lord, these attributes that friends, all of us delight in if we are thinking soberly. The mercy of God, the grace of God, the patience of God, the covenant love of God, all of these things are reasons to rejoice and to sing. And it's not so much that Jonah seemingly hated just the attributes. He hated the outworkings of them. He hated that in God's loving kindness, he was going to graft in Gentiles. He hated that in his loving kindness, he was going to bring people that Jonah thought could never be his brothers, but it is a bit laughable that they are. They are. They are more his brothers than those who are born in Israel and reject the good news of the gospel. And as he comes, he sees these things and he hates them. Them. He hates them. He hates the idea that God will extend this mercy to another. Not even in the midst of this, realizing that this mercy is what brought him in. He hates it, but as he's hating it, he is benefiting from it. He is enjoying it. He is resting in the covenant love of God. And his hatred is so strong that he begins to charge God with his own attributes. Because what is implied on the back end of this verse is the completion, that you are the God who will by no means clear the guilty. You visit the iniquity of the fathers on the sons and the sons, the third and the fourth generation. Are you being unjust in doing these things? And we'll even see a solution to that here in a moment. But what's interesting, and I think it's right to assume this, Jonah's doctrine was not erroneous. He looked at God and he called God by the very things that God identified himself with. But it is in this moment where you see the true level of hatred toward the grace of God extended toward one who we think is unworthy. He violates his own profession. He cites this language, and friends, I will tell you, there is nothing like doxology, how we live, to indicate and reveal the fatal flaws in our theology. We say we believe these things. Brothers and sisters, if Jonah believed these things, he would sit on this hill above Nineveh and sing. He would rejoice in the mercy of God coming to others who are unworthy altogether, because he himself has been there, because he himself knows that it is this that brought me in and it is this that will bring in a multiplicity without number. And you see this hatred, this vitriol toward this and it is what is most tragic, I'm convinced, it is in this prayer that it reveals that it is not only God's executing on his mercy and grace and covenant love, it is ultimately that his covenant love is bigger than anything that Jonah fathomed in the first place and he begins to spurn and hate God for it. Now, It is important to note Jonah wrote this book. Have you ever thought about Jonah writing this book? It's like, hey, somebody invited me to write about the worst four weeks of my Christian life and give it to you. Why would I do that? I'm convinced that Jonah repented, convinced. I think of no way any man would sit here and write this letter. But as he repents, I think that he must look back on this moment and think, what a wretched man I am. In his examination of self, as he considers his own prayer of hatred toward God, challenging him with his own attributes, God looks back and says, I am in perfect consistency with every attribute I have. Because all that is in God is God. And so we see this hatred, this vitriol come. And just as a side note, and perhaps a point of application Friends, if we examined this prayer in isolation, we would assume that he is in perfect consistency, that he is being faithful. As I already said, it is nothing like our doxology that will reveal the flaws in our theology. Brothers and sisters, we cannot afford to simply be precise theologically. We must love and cherish the person of God that is revealed in Scripture. It is then and only then that we will not only look at his attributes and delight in them. It is then and only then that we will delight in his person and all of his outworkings, for we know that they are all good. It is a fatal flaw to be theologically accurate and that not pierce your heart. For it is a love of a system and not of a person. And friends, salvation is not promised to you by a system. It is promised to you by the person and work of God. Now, there is a tragic response, and I think a tragic fruit of a flawed theology, a flawed understanding of the person of God. Jonah chapter four, verse three and four. Every time I read this, I think about a child laying on the ground, beating their fist against it, kicking and screaming. It is juvenile, but what does he do? He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Do you not see that childishness, that hatred so clearly indicated, that he wishes that God would simply smite him right there? He wishes for a passive suicide, if you would. End my life, I wish not to see these things. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, if you really do think, that, if you examine and you think that you've got all the theological concepts intact, but you do not love and delight in the person and work of God, it is no surprise that you would find yourself in utter dismay. It is no surprise that you would find yourself in utter dismay because you are always trying to parse what God is doing by your own understanding of him instead of who he actually is. Jonah in this is examining this from his own perspective of a God who makes covenant with one particular people and everybody else receives the condemnation of the law. They receive the condemnation of God. Justice, wrath, and fury are on them and them alone. It never reaches out. It is only in those who are of the Hebrews. And as he sees this, he thinks everything that I have believed is falling apart. And he says, I I cannot see this violation of justice. And he says, just end my life. This is the most heinous place to be. He has done what every prophet wishes he could do. Go into a nation, preach the good news, see the nation overturned with repentance, see God relent of disaster and add people to the kingdom. That was the delight of every prophet's soul. That's what they longed for. And as Jonah sees this, he sees the mercy of God extended to not just a one particular person, but a nation is overturned by repentance. And what is his response? Kill me. Kill me. Is it safe to say that Jonah amidst this was so blinded by his hatred that he did not look to the person of God at all? His biases, his hatred, his vitriol clouded everything that he knew of the God of Israel. Everything. Even as he says he knows these things, it is almost as though he forgets them even as he cites them. And so he prays, Lord, will you please kill me? Now, why is this important? And really, why would this even be here aside from just the point of making clear that Jonah is incredibly angry? There's a theme throughout scripture and it is a rather interesting theme. There are really three great prophets that we speak of regularly. And those three prophets are, as you all know, Moses, Elijah, and actually Jonah. Like when, when you bring up Jonah, people immediately have a recollection of him. As a matter of fact, we see Jesus make clear to cite Jonah in the New Testament, not one time, but multiple times. And these three prophets all have one major thing in common aside from their office of prophet. Every single one of them wished to die. Every one of them. It's incredibly interesting. Look, uh, Exodus 32, 32 through 33. Uh, uh, Moses is uh, seeing the wickedness of the people. He knows that God is furious and angry with him. And then, jo- and then Moses says this, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. He's essentially saying, blot me out and let them live. If you kill me, then we can let all of them live. If you take my life, blot my life out of the Lamb's book of life, If you take mine out, let all of them live. That's what I'm offering. And God says this to him. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. My goodness, what a interesting phrase. I mean, look at this. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Brothers and sisters, we're taught in the New Testament that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who is it that will be included in the book if everyone who sins will be blotted out of the book of life? I I see no room for any soul because God will not pardon the guilty. Jonah's charge is reasonable, isn't it? If God is pardoning, if he is passing over these things, then perhaps it is that God is being unjust, but we know that that is not the case. And so Moses comes and he says, well, if you'll blot my life out, then you can keep all of theirs in. And God says, I will blot out everyone who sins for the name from my book. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, all of you are probably familiar with this particular verse. This is right after Elijah kills a plethora of idol worshipers, and then a woman comes and says she's coming to kill him. And he says, in the midst of this, in the great sorrow, convinced that he is alone in his zealous work for God, he says... But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. This prophetic theme is is rather odd that Moses wishes for death primarily to see the redemption of uh, the Israelites. Elijah wishes for death because he fears that he is alone in his zealous task for God. The mission of God is laid on him and him only. And Jonah, on the other hand, wishes to die because he has become one who hates the mercy and grace and justice of God to such a degree that he simply wishes, take me away from this sight. God grants none of them their death. Why? He grants none of them their death because Moses' death could not blot out sin, trespass, and iniquity. He doesn't blot out the life of Elijah because Elijah is not alone in the mission that God has set for him. He doesn't blot out the life of Jonah because his mercy and grace and steadfast love will yet be displayed. But what is most interesting is that we do indeed have a true and better prophet and God granted him his request. When we see the Lord Jesus Christ in John 10 say, I lay down my life for my sheep, that true and better prophet did just that. And he did that infinitely better than Moses, Elijah, or Jonah could have, even in unison. Because who is it that blots out our trespasses that we might not be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life? And friends, we do well to note that every Ninevite there who repented and believed the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ blotted out their trespass and sin as well. Who was it that went alone to accomplish the mission of God The Lord Jesus Christ did. He took that task alone and he satisfied the wrath of God, not for one, but for a multitude without number. And who was it that demonstrated the loving kindness of God, the covenant love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God in one fail, perfect, harmonious sweep? The Lord Jesus Christ He is our true and better prophet. The reason that Jonah looks and he's so offended is he does not see how any possible world you could have justice and mercy kiss in such a sweet way. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see it and we know it in full. God does not pardon sin, trespass and iniquity. He justifies the sinner he ransoms them to himself. And friends, when we look at Jonah, we do see a frail and feeble prophet, one who is hateful, one who does not love the covenant love of God. But in Christ, we see the source of God's covenant love for a nation's past, present, and future. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning rejoicing in our true and better prophet, the one who laid down his life for his sheep, the one who gave his life a ransom for many, the one who went alone to the cross to raise up a multitude without number, the one who blotted out our sin, trespass, and iniquity instead of blotting us out of the Lamb's book of life. So Father, we come rejoicing in those realities and Father, I pray that we would look to Jesus, the one who is the true revelation of all the attributes of God and see them meet there perfectly. Lord, justice is not outweighed by mercy. Mercy is not conquered by justice. But instead, Lord, we see you execute every glorious attribute in perfect harmony. Where you are, as Romans says, the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Father, I pray that if there be any here who do not know the justification of God, that they would have on their tongues the taste of his justice. That it would be a burden too great for them to bear and that they would flee to the cross and find salvation and peace for their souls there and there alone, for only there is it found. And Father, above all, we pray that we would live making much of the true and better profit. And Lord, that as we celebrate with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation here below, that we would look forward to the day where we will celebrate with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation eternally. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen.